Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Tony. How are you doing? I am doing excellent. I have a question for you. Hit me. Have you ever seen the movie Knowing with Nicolas Cage? I have never even heard of that movie. Okay. Have you seen the movie Left Behind with Nicolas Cage? So I very artfully avoided that movie, but I do know who Nicolas Cage is, and it that whole combination seems ridiculous. Okay, so spoiler alert, if anybody is still interested in seeing an obscure Nicolas Cage movie from 2009, go ahead and fast forward maybe like 30 seconds here, uh, probably more than that. Uh, but Nicolas Cage is actually in two movies where not only does the rapture occur, but he is left behind in both instances. Really? Yes. So the movie Knowing, 2009, uh, it's played as like this weird sci-fi movie of like predictive prophecy, kind of like end of the world stuff. And at the end of the movie, it turns out it's aliens. And the aliens, it plays into like that ancient aliens thesis with like Ezekiel and the aliens. And so the aliens come and they take a bunch of people from the earth and they leave a bunch of people and then the sun explodes or something and kills kills everything on the earth. But like a bunch of people go in spaceships to some other place. Um, but the reason that I thought this was interesting, so Ashley and I watched this this afternoon just because we were looking for something dumb to watch. And it was dumb. It was one of those movies that was so bad that it was actually good. Like, we just laughed for the whole movie. Um, and Nicolas Cage was in, like, perfect Nicolas Cage form. But um, at one point in the movie, he plays, like, a astrophysicist or something like that. And there's, like, this religion versus science skepticism thing throughout the whole movie. Shocking. And he, he gets this series of numbers from like a time capsule. And if you look at the numbers in a certain way, it tells you like the date and then like the number of people killed in, in the tragedy that happened on that date. And so he's got 50 years worth of these and he matches everything up. And then there's three that haven't happened yet. So the movie is like him trying to figure out what's going on, how he can stop these things. And the, the punchline is that he can't and everybody dies. Um, but there's one scene where they start to talk about like like faith, the kids, his kid's mom is dead, and he's like, well, you don't even believe in heaven anymore. And he's like, I didn't say that. I just said I didn't know. But then like they drop this little hint that like his dad's actually a pastor, so it's like this really root of like bitterness. But towards the end of the movie, when he realizes that like he can't stop this final disaster and literally everyone's going to die, um, he calls his dad and he's like, Dad, do you remember that sermon you used to preach? every Pentecost about the gifts of the spirit. And he's like, I have a prophecy for you and I want you to respect it. So he goes in this thing about it, but I just thought it was perfect. I mean, this was like Providence that on a day that you and I are going to talk about the Holy spirit in our systematic theology course, Nicholas cage was in not one, but two rapture movies. 
And in one of them, his father preached a sermon about the gifts of the spirit. How perfect is that? It's divine providence. Also, your impression of Nicolas Cage is spot on. Yeah, I do like Nicolas Cage. There's a video online of like all of the Nicolas Cage uh, faces and like sounds. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that sounds like something that's really worth worth your time yes. to go stop yeah. right now and go view that. How does that work? Like, if you're Nicolas Cage, like, so your agent comes to you and says, "Hey, remember that time you were in a movie where there was a rapture and you, and you were left behind? Let's do that again, but yeah. different." Yeah, I have no idea how he ended up in Left Behind. That that movie, the funny part about that movie, Ashley and I went and saw it in the theater just because we wanted to just nerd out about it. But the funny thing about that movie is Nicolas Cage is in the cockpit of a jetliner for like 90% of the movie. <laughs> he plays, He plays. Um, hopefully our audience is not familiar with the Left Behind books because they're terrible and terrible theology, but he plays the airline pilot who was flying over the Atlantic when the rapture happens. That's and right. they make, what was like, that character's name? Uh, Raymond? Ray, I think Raymond something? Yeah, I think that's it. Well done. In the book, like, he's in the plane and there's the rapture and he just, like, turns around and flies back. In the movie, there's all this chaos and, like, he almost flies into another plane and the plane's landing gear doesn't work and there's a whole extra thing about it. Wow. But yeah, like literally like 95% of his time in the movie is spent in the cockpit going like, Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, this can't be happening. Oh. So ladies and gentlemen, Tony Arsenal as Nicholas Cage. Cage. So the <laughs> fact that this movie came on on a Sunday that we were going to talk about this, if you weren't a Calvinist before, if you didn't believe in divine determinism before this, you should now. Yeah. Let all of that be set aside in your mind. There is no longer any room for doubt. Correct. So today is our systematic theology section, and we have a huge topic, right? Oh, it's big. It's big. So um, we kind of were going back and forth about how exactly to approach this. So the, the discussion about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit usually breaks up into two sections. There's the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then there's the work of the Holy Spirit. And within the work of the Holy Spirit is usually ecclesiology, which is going to be its own discussion. But then also within the work of the Holy Spirit is usually a discussion about the gifts of the Spirit and how the Spirit is acting in the lives of Christians today. And so, that's, the, that's the good part everybody loves to get after. Yes. So we, uh, we decided uh, that we are going to put off the discussion of the gifts of the Spirit and cessationism, continuationism, uh, but we're only going to put it off one week. Permanently. Permanently. Oh, just till next week. Just till next week, yes. We're going to put it off permanently <laughs> until next week. Because that really deserves its own space to kind of unpack a lot of that stuff out, outside of what we want to talk about today. It does. And the other thing, too, is that um, the way that we've structured this is basically one large theology proper section where we talk about the nature of God, the nature of the Trinity, and the nature and activity of all three persons as one large unit. And the Holy Spirit is kind of the last part of that unit. So we wanted to keep that sort of self-contained and then we'll move on to kind of the gifts of the spirit cessationism next week. So we're not going to, we're not going to skip it. We're not shying away from it just because we're terrified of it, which we are, but um, we wanted to keep that kind of self-contained for kind of teaching didactic purposes. Is this the episode where we get to say Ruach as many times as we want? Ruach. Yeah. Ruach. That's good. If you want to say Ruach, right. And this is a true story. When I took Hebrew in college, 
we had a, uh, a freshman who was in the class, which was really strange in itself, but that doesn't have anything to do with the story. And that sort of, that noise at the end of the word ruach, that is called a patach, right? Um, of it's, course. It's a chet is the word, is the letter, uh, which you can think of it, it's spelled chet, but it's actually chet. So think of like hate, but like you're you're hawking up a loogie in the beginning. Yeah, and this kid, uh, I remember his name was Brian, and he could not make that noise. And so the professor actually brought in a glass of milk every morning for him and made him drink that before class started. And then he would what? make him read out loud. So when he got to the hate, he would say, now, now just clear your throat from all that milk you've been drinking. So he would get to that. And he go and he's like, there you got it. That's the noise. Wow, that is a dedicated and somewhat strange professor. But oh, yeah, Brian, definitely. if you're Brian, if you're listening, hit us up. Let us know how that's going. Um, and then uh, the word ruach actually also ha- it has two of the most difficult Hebrew words uh, sounds to make. The first is a resh, which we usually just say as like a, a hard R, like ruach, but it's actually more like <laughs> it's kind of like you're trying to make the noise of Chewbacca. <laughs> But this, like this makes for some great podcasting right here. Like this is just gold. <laughs> It'd be better if people could see my face when I'm trying to do yeah, this. It, I really wish they could because this is gold. Just Tony just going through most of the Hebrew alphabet, all its like difficult pronunciations. I uh, I read online when I was studying Hebrew, I was trying to figure out how to make those noises, and they said uh, when you're trying to make the the noise of a reish, you should pretend that you have a cactus stuck in your throat and you're trying desperately <laughs> to get it out of there. Uh, So these guys who are trying to teach Hebrew clearly have like the best metaphors and comparisons for pronunciation. Like you just don't get that anywhere else. Like I I took Spanish most of my life and nobody's ever said, here's how you need to do this. Pretend like you got some kind of plant stuck in your throat. That'll really get you the right pronunciation. Yeah. And um, Hebrew is a really hard language. And then we'll actually start talking about the Holy Spirit once we get done talking about Hebrew. Hebrew is a really hard language because... Um, unlike Spanish or French or even like Latin or Greek, um, you're dealing with uh, very different types of sounds. So like it's kind of a stereotype and I'm, I'm not trying to be stereotypical, but when someone does want to stereotype um, Asian speakers, they have them confuse R's and L's. And the reason for that is because um, my understanding of it, at least, is that uh, there is no clear uh, R sound. The the way they make R's and right, L's in correct. Asian languages is very similar. So, um, and even if you if you take a word and you replace the R with an L, like the word doesn't sound all that different. So, different languages have different kinds of sounds. And if your language lacks a kind of sound that another language does, it's literally that your tongue cannot make that kind of noise. Right, like your, exactly. the muscles in your tongue don't know how to do it. So there's sometimes there's a lot of practice and sometimes we just kind of cheat um, in learning other languages. So like that double L, the L- LA or whatever it is in, uh, or the double R in Spanish is one of those where we right. usually roll our tongues in the front, but I guess native Spanish speakers roll their tongue in the back. And that's not yeah. something that we can even do as primary English speakers. No, exactly. It's like mullet pronunciation. Right. It's all business up back, but or all business in the front, but you got to roll it in the back. <laughs> all right. That's so exactly the, right. the Holy Spirit. This has been the Reformed Brotherhood Language Podcast. Your linguistic podcast. There's some sort of chaos going on outside my door. I think there's a puppy out there, but we'll just press on. So that was a great segue for me to ask you, Tony. <laughs> who is the Holy Spirit? And the is Holy he at Spirit your door? 
Yes. So the, a couple just baseline things for us to get out. Um, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not um, some sort of energy field or anything like that. So take any comparison you've ever heard in church or anywhere else of the force from Star Wars or the Tao or like the magnetic field of the earth or anything that you've heard which compares the Holy Spirit to some sort of impersonal force and just throw that in the garbage. Just get rid of it right off the bat. Because for us, it's very easy for us to think of the Father and the Son in personal terms because we have fathers and we are sons or we have fathers and we might be daughters. But we know what it means to be (laughs) – you and I aren't obviously, but the women who listen to our podcast, I think there's like three of them. Um, We know what it means to have a father. We know what a father's like. We know what a son's like. But we don't have any real direct experience with a, a spirit in personal terms. So we can think about what that is, but it's really hard for us. Um, don't do this, but if you were to do this um, and you were to think about the father in a picture form, most people would think of like an old man in a white beard, right? An old man in robes with a white beard. And if you were to think about the son in similar terms, um, which you shouldn't do, but you most people would think of sort of the same thing, but younger, right? Maybe a, a younger man in his 40s or 30s with a beard and a, a row. But when you say the same thing about the spirit, most people are like, I, I don't I don't really know. Like There's maybe they would to go to. They would draw like a ghost, like sort of like the stereotypical ghost of like a person with a sheet yeah. on with like Scooby no. Doo. Right. Or they might they might draw like a cloud and maybe put some eyes in the cloud or something if they want to make sure that it's a person they give it eyes. But um, we have to make sure that we we retain the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So that even extends down to our language. We should never refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Ever. It's a the Holy Spirit is a person, so the Holy Spirit is a he. And that's not because like the Holy Spirit is biologically male. That's just the way that the scriptures refer to the persons of the Godhead. They use masculine language. Right on. So the Spirit is God, like right. the Father and the Son, and that means that He's gonna stand alongside them as an object of worship, which is incidentally why we baptize in the threefold divine name, which includes right. of course the Spirit. Right. And that was one of the major controversies surrounding the Holy Spirit in the early church was um, not just is the Holy Spirit divine, is the Holy Spirit a person? Those two things were relatively uncontroversial. Um, What exactly it meant for the Holy Spirit to be divine was was a bit of controversy. But the fact that the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped with the Father and the Son and alongside co-equal in glory and honor was a major point of, con- of controversy. So we're we're assuming that our audience um, is basically comprised of Orthodox Reformed Christians. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time defending the divinity or personhood of the Trinity or of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to just assume that. So there are all sorts of great resources to do that if you want um, good studies in the early church, and we can we can put some of those in the show notes. But I want to just read two um, two clauses. The first is from the Nicene Creed, and then I want to read a, a clause from the Westminster Confession. So the Nicene Creed, as it closes, it talks about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and it says, I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and Son together is glorified, worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So if you're a Western Christian, you're noticing that I'm leaving out a particular set of phrases that we'll talk about. Um, And then I'm going to read from the Westminster Confession here. This is chapter 2, Article 3. 
It says, In the unity of the Godhead there be three persons, of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So, what we see, and we talked about this when we talked about the Trinity, and I'll put the link to which episode that was. Um, it was called Your Least Heretical Life Now, if you're looking for it on the website. Um, but the the when we talked about the Trinity, we talked about how there are something called the processions. Um, it gets confusing because we talk about the procession of the Holy Spirit and the begottenness of the Son. But when we're talking about the processions, plural, what we're talking about is the relationships um, of origin or relationships of personal identity that are inherent in the Trinity that that help us distinguish who is who and, and what the difference between the persons are. So the Father is, is of none. The Son is begotten of the Father. That's why he's the Son, is because a Son is begotten of a Father. And then the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Or if you're an Eastern Christian, you might just say proceeds um, from, the, uh, from the Father. Right. And so it's important for us to recognize that those relationships of origin are inherent in the way that the persons relate to each other. It's not quite right to say that they're fundamental to the nature of God because the nature uh, of God is single and simple and indivisible and all those things that we talked about in the first uh, first systematic episode. But um, we wanted to talk a little bit about what's called the filioque clause. So if you notice when I read the Nicene Creed, I, did, I said proceeds from the Father. And then when I wrote uh, read the, uh, the Westminster Confession Clause, I said proceeds from the Father and the Son. So Jesse, what does the word filioque mean? I was going to ask you to explain that, actually. Okay. So the (laughs) word filioque filioque is a word in Latin that means and the son. So it's not anything super special, um, but it was the word that was inserted into the creed. The original Nicene Creed, when it was ratified at the Council of Constantinople in 381, did not include the phrase uh, and the son. It just said proceeds from the father. Right. But when... uh, uh, we don't know exactly when, but um, sometime in the seven or eight hundreds, the Western Latin speaking church started to use this phrase. And it had been in use and referenced in various ways throughout, basically from the point of the Council of Constantinople on. The Western Latin speaking church, we have evidence that there was people using this language and speaking of the spear proceeding from the Father and the Son. But sometime in the seven or eight hundreds, um, a, a group of monks started using that liturgically. So at, when they recited the creed as part of their public worship, they started inserting this clause. So what they did is they took their, their theology and they started inserting their theology into a clause without any sort of ecclesiastical warrant. And then we, we fast forward a couple hundred years um, and in the, the 11th century, it's like 1054, I think is the year of the Great Schism. The Western Church officially added, uh, on a formal level, the phrase uh, and the Son to the Creed. And that's what precipitated the Great Schism between the Eastern Greek-speaking Church and the Western Latin-speaking Church. So some people will look at this and think, man, this is just not a big deal. Why would churches split over this? Right, exactly. But it was a big enough deal that some of the most learned theologians and pastors of that era recognized that there was a big distinction between saying the Father... Uh, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son versus just from the Son alone. 
the kind of unfortunate punchline is that the actual framers of the Nicene Creed in both the Eastern and Western parts of the church, both the Greek and Latin speaking church, um, really were thinking about the procession of the spirit as from the father through the son. So what we see in the scriptures is there's a consistent pattern that everything that comes from the father is mediated uh, through the son. So salvation, election comes from the father and we're elected in the son. Um, A lot of those things, creation happens The Father speaks through the Son, and that's creation. Um, There was a lot of political reasons why this happened, and we don't don't need to get into that. But the the early church, and we see this explicitly in people like Tertullian, Athanasius, some of the Cappadocian fathers use this, is that the Holy Spirit in the uh, ontological uh, trinity, which is the trinity as it exists uh, in and of itself, not just how it's revealed, um, the the ontological trinity, the, the Spirit, proceeds from the Father through the Son. So the Son is not absent from the procession of the Spirit. The Son is a part of the relationship the Father and the Son is a part of the procession of the Spirit. Some authors would even talk about how the Spirit is the bond of love. The Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. And if we talk about it in those terms, then it's understandable why we would say that to say the Son is not a part of the procession doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, I'm not a fan of talking about the spirit as the bond of love because I think it tends to depersonalize the the son and the or the spirit. Um, and what's difficult about that is then what do you do with the fact that well the spirit presumably loves the father and the son as well. So if right. the spirit loves the son, then is there some other fourth person of the Trinity that's the bond of love between the son and the spirit? Um, then the spirit loves the father. So is the son, the spirit, the son, the bond between we get into all these weird questions. So I think that causes more problems than it, it generates. Mm-hmm. So have I yeah. lost you completely yet? I think I've lost no, myself I'm, completely. No, I'm, to, I'm totally down with you on that. I mean, that's why the double procession is such a big deal because it does have implications for how we understand the integrative nature of the Trinity. Right. So I can understand why, even just it seems ironic or perhaps small that three words would cause such a great schism or contribute to any kind of great controversy. But there is this sense in which to kind of defining it rightly gives you a proper perspective on how the spirit bears all the divine attributes of eternity and omniscience, wisdom, omnipresence, incomprehensibility, and how they are still essentially three, but somehow integrated into one or, or proceeding in such a way. And I like what you said there. I don't often don't often really go with the bond of love metaphor either because it tends to make the spirit like just a means of connection rather than a personal being that is a part of a community in the Trinity. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And um, on the flip side though, we also have to recognize that um, the idea that the father and son, that the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son in exactly the same way, that's also deeply problematic. So some... So there's, there's kind of this, um, there's a perspective in the East that the, the spirit proceeds from the father alone and not from the son at all. The challenge with that is, well, then what's the difference between procession and generation, right? The son is generated of the father. The spirit proceeds from the father. What's the difference between those two things? And there's no good answer, right? We don't know. There's got to be some difference because they're not the same thing. They're called different things, but we don't know. The flip side is if the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son in exactly the same way, then what we run into is that the father and the son share a property that the spirit does not. 
Right. You, you're tracking with me on that? Yep. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. It, it's a problematic all around. Right. So it's not the case. We shouldn't talk about, uh, so there's divine attributes, omniscience, omnipresence, aseity, simplicity, all those things we talked about in that first theology proper episode. It's not the case that we can distinguish the persons based on those attributes, right? Exactly. We can't look at one person and say, well, this person is ase, and so it must be the Father. This person is omnipresent, so it must be the Spirit. All three of the persons share not only the same kinds of attributes, but the exact same attribute, right? The, the aseity of the Son is exactly the same, numerically singular, with the aseity of the Father. It's not two aseities, it's a single aseity. The Athanasian Creed um, says that beautifully. Right on. But yep. and they, we can still distinguish the persons. And the way right, we exactly. distinguish those persons is not a property. So sonship is not a, a personal attribute. What sonship is, is it's a relationship of origin. Now, not an origin in time. It's not that the son was created. Um, it's an eternal origin. And what that even means, we don't know. That's one of those phrases we use that's kind of a placeholder for mystery. But there's some sort of relationship that the father and the son have, and we call that generation. And there's some sort of relationship that the spirit and the, the father have that we call procession. Um, and the problem is, if the spirit has a relationship of procession with the father and has the exact same kind of relationship of pro procession with the son, then how do we distinguish the father from the son in relation to the spirit? Does that make sense? Yeah. We, it's, it, this is where I don't even know what to say because language just falls like horribly short on this. Account. Right. And so that's, that's the basic discussion and basic argument between the East and the West on this procession question is we have the West saying, well, no, the son can't be uninvolved in the procession of the spirit because that just doesn't make any sense because then the, what is the son, then both the son and the spirit are, how do we distinguish the son from the spirit? They both are, they both have some sort of relationship of origin with the, the father, and we don't know how they're different from each other. So we can't distinguish the son and the spirit. In the east, they're saying, but wait a second. If the son and the spirit, or if the spirit proceeds from the father and the son in the same exact way, then how do we distinguish the father and the son? And what this all misses is what I just referenced a little while ago, is that in the early church, what we had was the son or the spirit proceeding from the father and the spirit proceeding through the son. So the relationship of origin with the father is different than the relationship of origin with the son. It's still, it's both procession, but it's a different kind of procession. So the, the, the analogy that I've used in the past is I might say that I've mailed you a letter and I've, that letter proceeds from me to you, but I've mailed that letter through the postal service. And so it's not wrong for me to say that the letter proceeds both from me and from the postal service. But the way that it proceeds for me is different than the way it proceeds from the postal service. Is that yeah. are you tracking with that analogy? That's a that's a pretty good analogy. I think that emphasizes exactly what we're talking about here. It's similar in direction, similar in emphasis, but totally different in the actual procession itself. Right, right. And so um, I want to just bring up a book recommendation now. Um, there's a book called. Uh, there's a new series that Zondervan is publishing called um, New Studies in Dogmatics. And so far they've published two volumes. The first, um, I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason into the order they're publishing these. Um, it may just be the order that the authors finish them in. But the first volume is called The Holy Spirit and it's written by Christopher Holmes. 
And you probably could have called this, instead of calling it the Holy Spirit, you could have called it the Filioque book. Because essentially the whole book is unpacking the Filioque and what the implications are. And it's an excellent book. It's very technical. So this is not for the faint of heart. There's also an entry in the series called The Trinity, which is by Fred Sanders, um, which I haven't finished yet, but everything I've read is phenomenal. And the two books really make a good complement because unlike most Trinity books, Fred Sanders doesn't really address the Filioque at all. Usually a, usually a Trinity book will get bogged down in the Filioque, um, but they've really shifted this discussion of the Filioque to the Holy Spirit book. So read both of those together if you're going to read them. Um, and what I've really valued about this book by Chris Holmes or Christopher Holmes, I don't know if Chris is the right. If he you can call him that. Chris if you guys uh, on a yeah, first we'll name basis. Yeah. But um, what uh, Professor Holmes here, that sounds pretty cool too. It's like Sherlock nice. Holmes. Uh, what Professor Holmes here has um, <laughs> done, I think, is taken a sort of esoteric, sort of arcane topic and has really shown not only the biblical foundations, which is the most important thing, is can we root this doctrine in the Bible, but has also shown some of the ways that understanding the spirit, not only as proceeding from the Father through the Son, but also as this bond of love language how that is important to the average Christian. So if I were to ask you right now, and I'm not going to because I don't I don't want to put you on the spot, but if I were to ask you how this theology of the Filioque is important, most of the time people look back at me and go, I have no idea. This doesn't right. seem to make yep. any practical application whatsoever. And I even remember sitting in my um, sitting in my patristics class with uh, Dr. Donald Fairbairn, who I absolutely adore. Um, probably the professor has had more impact on me than any other professor. And I remember at the end of patristic theology, it was a summer course. So on day five, he we talked about the filioque and he said, can anyone think of a reason why we need to defend this doctrine? And it was totally silent. Nobody could. And his argument was kind of like, well, then why are we? I think that that uh, respectfully, I disagree now that the doctrine is really important. And the mm -hmm. reason for that is because um, the ontological functions of the Trinity, the ontological roles that each person in the Trinity plays um, tells us something about the role and the function that each person plays in the economy of salvation. Um, I need to look up a quote, but the, the basic end of it is that who a person is in the Trinity, the role they play in the Trinity informs us and explains what they do in the economy of salvation. So, the fact that the Father sent the Son and sent the Spirit, that informs us something about the person of the Trinity and how they relate to each other. But more importantly than that, the, the reality of, of their nature and relation with each other extends into, into um, salvation history. So the, the, the Holy Spirit serves a role in the Trinity or is a role in the Trinity. And that role in the Trinity sort of pushes out of eternity into time to um, help us understand. So if you look in Mark Jones's um, Knowing Christ book, he talks about this a little bit in relation to the second person of the Trinity. Is He talks about how the reason the second person of the Trinity comes is because it was proper for the second person of the Trinity to come and be our mediator because he was in the middle place of the Trinity. That's an old Puritan ideal. So this ontological reality of the second person of the Trinity as opposed to the first or third makes it more fitting for him to be the mediator than it would be for the third or the first person to be the mediator. Right. Exactly. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I need to find if, this quote. If we're going to say that the Spirit does everything that we need in our life with God, then we really ought to understand properly and be able to articulate what it is that the Spirit actually does and how He relates to the other parts of the Trinity. So I agree with you. I think it is worth defending. And probably most people would just fall on the ground of kind of having a more Western thought process without even kind of being able to articulate that. But it doesn't remove the fact that this is really helpful because it impacts how we pray, to whom we pray, how we understand uh, the gifts, which we'll talk about another time, and how they're applied in the church. But if we just take for granted, or we just kind of assume that it's kind of one directional, it doesn't proceed in both ways from both the Father and the Son or through the Son, then we are prone to actually make errors in how we either describe God, teach God, or, you know, in particular my own life, I'm thinking like just prayer and understanding how the Spirit moves in the work of ministry. Right, right. Absolutely. So I'm going to read this quote. This is from um, that second volume in the New Studies in Dogmatic series um, titled The Triune God, written by Fred Sanders. And this is on page 113. And it says, The Son and the Spirit come into our history as an extension of who they have always been. When the Father sent the Son into the economy of salvation, the relationship of divine sonship was extended from the life of God where it dwells by nature down into human history where it tabernacles by grace. Divine sonship, having always existed, extends its line of relationality into human history and created realities. Similarly, the eternal procession of the Spirit began to take place among us when the Spirit was poured out on all flesh at Pentecost. So this ties into the filioque, right? So if we picture the Spirit as not having sort of a unitive relationship, if we entirely reject the idea that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son, then we lose this. Because what we have to recognize as Christians, and we'll get into this more when we get into some of our soteriology sections, is that the Holy Spirit, because he was the bond of love in the ontology of the Trinity, that reality of sort of bond of loveness extends into salvation history, and the Holy Spirit is what binds us to the Father because of what the Son did. So while the Son extends sonship, divine sonship extends into created realities, and that divine sonship becomes ours by grace, what it was by nature. So also the bond of love that was naturally existent between the Father and the Son, which was the Holy Spirit, that extends down into created history and is now the bond of love that we share with the Father. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, again, I think that's a pretty... So a lot of this is pretty technical, but that is a good way of describing what we take for granted when we speak about unity in the spirit. It's it's both like horizontal and vertical unity, and it has to be the way you just described it if that's to be a real unity and not just some kind of supposed or ephemeral concept. Right. And that's what's so difficult about this is that for all of the um, real legitimate challenges that I can bring to the to the language or concept of the Holy Spirit being the bond of love between the Father and the Son— all the stuff we talked about earlier is, well, doesn't that depersonalize the spirit? What about the bond of love between the spirit and the son? Is that some fourth person in the Trinity or does the spirit not love the son? Like how, how could that be for all of those objections? I can't get past this. This Holy spirit book really solidified that in my mind that I can't get past the fact that what the Holy spirit was in eternity past, that he was this, this, loving bond of fellowship between the father and the son what he was in eternity past ontologically by nature 
he has granted to us by grace. And that is a theme that runs throughout throughout the whole testimony of the early church fathers. And they start developing that when they talk about the son, right? What the, what the son was by nature, that is the son of the father, he grants to us by grace. So we become sons and daughters of the father, right? John 1, um, Romans uh, 12, I think. No, Romans 8, uh, right? He, uh, those he predestined, he also called in order that uh, they might be conformed to the image of the son, that he might be the first among many brothers, right? right? So this idea that the divine sonship of the son is given to us in salvation. So also the divine the divine bond of loveness of the spirit is what unites us to the father in that bond of love as well. So we share the same bond of love that the son does with the father because that bond of love is the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And, and like I said, I don't, I don't really know how to get around the objections of that I, I myself have raised on an academic level. I wrote a paper uh, three years back, maybe, that basically shredded this language of bond of love and, and straight up said, this depersonalized the Holy Spirit. And all of those critiques I would still make, like that language still does depersonalize the Holy Spirit. But I don't know what to do with it. You know, I don't know what else to do with it. And, and this reality of the Spirit... The spirit's ontological function extending to the economic, I can't get past that. Yeah, neither can I. I totally agree because this is where it's so valuable to us, I think, on a practical level in the sense that sometimes we view the spirit as kind of like the throwaway part of the Trinity. So we have you know, the father in the like quintessential language, like the father planning, the son accomplishing, mm-hmm. and the spirit applying. And we're often like, well, what is he applying? Well, he's applying salvation. But here we really nail it down to, well, what does that actually look like? It's exactly what you said, that by grace, and I suppose this is what makes grace so amazing, or at least one of the things, is that the spirit is actually like bringing to bear in beyond just a legal sense, like this true adoption right. being made a son of the son. And it's right. the spirit through grace that, that happens because it's the same bond and same love that exists in the Trinity. Somehow, in an amazing way, we're being brought kind of into that stream or into that river to stand in the midst of it. And I, I recognize, even as I say that, it makes it seem like the spirit is a means to an end rather than the end himself. But there is something also very true and very profound about the means that he is applying. Right. And it's hard to separate the two without sounding like you're on one side or the other, where you're like giving with one hand and taking away with the other. But we're just, I think, at least trying to be realistic that it's a hard thing to talk about. I mean, this is one of the hardest things, I think, to really articulate well. Even beyond the Trinity, this is very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we talked about atonement, one of the things we landed on that was so beautiful about the atonement is that in the atonement, we get Christ. We get God. That's that's what salvation is, is the benefit right. of salvation is that we get God. And for me, one of the things that I've always struggled with is, okay, so I understand that I get the Father because I'm put into a sonship relationship. And I understand that I get the Son because I made a brother, right? The, the Son is my brother in the faith. He, hey, brother. both on a level of humanity, but also on some level as the Son, the second verse of the Trinity, he's my brother. I didn't quite understand how to fit the spirit into that framework. And this really has solidified it is that I get the father uh, because I'm adopted. 
I get the son because I'm adopted by the same father that the son has. And I get the spirit because the spirit is that bond that relates us to each other. The spirit is the unity that I now share with the son and with the father. Um, And now because he's the unity, I also share that unity with the spirit. Yes. And that extends then for that matter to all other believers. So when we speak about baptism in the spirit, Mm -hmm. if you are a believer, you have the spirit. So in 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So it is that baptism of the spirit that makes us one body. So that's why I'm thinking it's both vertical and horizontal. That's what makes this really beautiful. It's the spirit that unites all the people together in the holy body of Christ right. to be able to do God's work. Yeah. So this is like something worth knowing and something worth appreciating. And there's like great, we often think of like the power of the spirit being like manifest or demonstrative, some kind of uh, awareness or sensibility that the spirit is present. We often pray, pray for that. But sometimes I, I often think like we don't need to pray for things that God has already done. Right. And this is one of his great gifts that he has given us the spirit, which is real to bind us together. And not only that, this is part of the, this is what's so, this makes my brain want to do a somersault, but this is the part of the Godhead, which is equally holy on, on the same part that he has given to dwell in us. Right. Like how incredible is, is that, that, that we are drawn back to God because there's a part of God that is drawing us on back onto himself and then drawing us to each other almost in a magnetized type way, but don't use that analogy in the sense that this is real. Like it's not just good feelings. It's not just some kind of like common way of thinking or way of expression, but there is a real Holy Spirit and he is actively involved in our lives. And in fact, he is the God's presence on earth right now. Yeah. So there's like, I think it's, it's appropriate to get a little technical and to try to really define this because it does have outworkings. It really does. Yeah. And, and I think we're, we're starting to sort of circle around something that I think is really important and is a really common misconception in certain parts of Christianity. Um, and we'll get into some more of this next week when we talk about cessationism and continuationism. But you use the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be right. like crystal clear right now that baptism of the Holy Spirit and conversion are one and the same thing. If you are a Christian who has has given your life to Christ, uh, whatever language we want to put around that, if you trust Christ for your salvation, then the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, it means you're not a Christian. Um, There are parts of the church, um, particularly the Pentecostal Assemblies of God, Um, the more charismatic groups that want to view this baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second blessing. And they'll use that kind of language that, well, there's conversion and that's good and well, and you're a Christian and you're saved. But if you really want to live in the fullness of salvation, then you need to get the spirit. And, and that just totally contradicts the whole flow of scripture and everything that we just talked about, right? The spirit is what unites you to Christ. The spirit is what brings you to the father. The spirit is what applies this, the finished work of Christ on the cross to your account. So if, if Christ writes the check, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to the bank to cash it, right? Wow. Nice bank metaphor. Yeah. I've been trying. I've been thinking about bank metaphors uh, just for you. But, um, you know, then that breaks down in a lot of ways as we get there. But the spirit is not some auxiliary thing that is optional for the Christian life. Right. It's not the case that we, um, 
you know, that we can live as Christians and enjoy sort of a second second tier Christianity without right. the presence of the spirit in our life. But if we want to be really good Christians, then we'll have the presence of the spirit. Uh, and, and I personally, you know, I came to faith in a charismatic context. And I remember real distinctly um, times where people would be praying in tongues. And my pat, my youth pastor who was ordained as an assemblies of God um, pastor, it wasn't an assemblies of God group, but he was an assembly of God's pastor. And as I learned more about that theology, I started to see exactly what was going on. Um, He would basically tell us like, well, if you really want to know if you're a Christian, if you haven't spoken tongues, then that's not a good sign. And I never spoke in tongues. That's crazy. I mean, I yeah, pretended to speak in tongues. There was times where I babbled and made noises that sounded like speaking in the tongue. Um, but the fact is that I didn't have to do any of that because the, the Holy Spirit dwelled in me. I was baptized by the Holy Spirit on January 23rd of 1998 when I became a Christian. Um, when I confessed my sins and trusted in Christ and and repented, that was when the Holy Spirit became a part of my life and became part of me. Right. It's not just the case. The Holy Spirit is I I don't become the Holy Spirit, obviously, but the Holy Spirit is not something external to me anymore. Right. We talked about perichoresis and sort of mutual indwelling. We talked about the Trinity just as the son is in the father and the father in the son. The Holy Spirit is in me. His person and my person overlap in a real substantial way. Not the same way that the persons of the Trinity overlap, but that sort of perichoretic union that the Spirit and the Father and the Son share with each other. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an an, an analogical, that was a hard word, an analogical um, relationship. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. He interpenetrates my being. He, He mutually indwells me. And I live in the spirit, right? That language is in the scriptures all over the place. We walk in the spirit. We live in the spirit. Um, we, we live and move in, in the spirit. Um, so we have to remember that. And, and I just, I don't think we can land that hard enough that the, the, the Christian who's sitting back there and thinking, man, I haven't, I haven't experienced anything all that amazing. Well, neither have most Christians in all of history. Even in the Bible, the majority of Christians didn't experience miracles, the majority right. of um, Jewish believers before the coming of Christ lived and died without ever experiencing miracles. That's just the way it is. The ordinary function of the church and of the nation of Israel was not overly miraculous. Right. And yet, in another sense, when we speak about being indwelt by the Spirit, that is, of course, we would all agree, a miraculous concept right. by itself. Right. That there is something powerful there. I like what you said because I've often thought, especially like the first instance, it's not really we who receive the spirit, but it's the spirit who receives us Absolutely, like, into this family, into a part of being in union with Christ. And so, you know, I always was like blown away by it, considering that, you know, the atoning work of Jesus occurred in the past. It was objective. It was definitive. And the spirit continues to work today, but it's often in our own subjectivity. So, of course, he's equipping us to serve, to preach, to pray effectively, to regenerate us, to give us new birth, to sanctify us. All, all that stuff, which I'm not um, like delegitimatizing. But when somebody says, well, there's two levels of Christianity, higher or lower, or there's a mediocre level, and the high level is really being baptized in the Spirit. And what they mean by that is 
some kind of weird demonstrative act, especially speaking in tongues, then what they've done, I hope people have traced all the way through our conversation, is they've totally just unraveled everything we just spoke about in terms of the Trinity. Right. It actually just causes the it to, to all fall apart completely. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It really is a big deal. So it's by making that statement, which is a statement about the power of the Spirit in your life, in a sense, what he does or how he behaves, you can actually undermine your entire theological perspective and just fall right off the tracks without like any additional work. Just that by itself uh, totally just undermines all good theology. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, we... I think this just underscores again how important it is. You know, I think we've probably said this in one way or another on all of our systematic theology episodes is that this stuff seems technical and arcane. And I think on some level, we all just want to say, like, I just want to love Jesus. So why do I need to know all this stuff? No theology, but Jesus. Exactly. But that is a theological position. Right. (laughs) And the reality of it is, is that, you know, I use this example um, in a different context is if if I told you, oh, man, I really love my wife. And you said, well, well, tell me a little bit about her. And I said, well, her name is Harry and she um, she rides a motorcycle and, um, you know, she's got these amazing blue eyes. Um, You would look at me and you go, wait a second. You're obviously not talking about the same person that you're married to. There's there's a disconnect. You may love that that um, biker named Harry with blue eyes, but that's not the same person as, you know, Ashley with brown eyes who uh, is afraid of motorcycles like that's not the same person. So when we when we talk about theology and we get into some of this technical stuff, it's similar to talking about like my, my wife's favorite food or my wife's favorite movie or my wife's favorite right. activity is those technical things about her that really require study and require attention to details. That's the same kind of thing we're talking about here is understanding the relationship that the spirit has with the father and the son in eternity past may not seem like something that has a lot of practical payout. And frankly, it might not in average everyday average piety, right? Most people, whether they think the father proceeds from the father or whether the son proceeds from the father or from the father and the son, that's probably not going to change the way that they pray. It's probably not going to change the way that they worship. But nevertheless, one of those positions is true and one of them's not. And we should always right. strive to be thinking true thoughts about God as he's revealed them to us in scripture. And we don't want to find ourselves just being God stalkers. Like we just, we don't want to find ourselves just using the Bible kind of flippantly or or what we understand from what other people have have read or, or to us or other people have written kind of about the Bible or about the scriptures because without studying, without going through the hard work of what you basically just did of explaining the, the double procession and how rich and deep and wonderful understanding that is, we tend to be like people who go through God's trash. We just pick up details about him or we drive by his house with our lights off in a weird kind of creepy kind of way. Right. And we're not actually getting to know him. We just know about him. Right. So this is really trying to understand something about the character of God. So we might praise him better. So we might worship him more authentically and enthusiastically. And again, I know that people will say that's far too technical to me. But in my opinion, you can't really begin, even begin to appreciate the grace that has been extended through us through the sonship of Christ and how tight that union is, how real that union is. Like it's not, it's not like a, a subgenre of union. It is like right. the real deal, sharing something with uh, the divinity itself. And that is 
I don't know. I, I with you. Like we can't underscore that enough. I don't think. Right. I, I mean, we should also say at this point, we we probably have to give this disclaimer that the spirit is also not an Asian woman, right? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a movie about this, isn't there? <laughs> Oh, is there? I was just saying that randomly. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So we wanted to take a little bit of time. We felt like it would be, um, we would be kind of derelict in our duties as podcasters. Are there duties as podcasters? They're published on the internet. Yeah, I guess there are duties as publishers, uh, as podcasters. Uh, There's a movie which is based on a book called The Shack that is just, everybody is raving about it right now. And I have not read the book. Jesse, have you read the book? I have read the book actually. Can you um, can you give us a brief, uh, like really high level overview of the the plot of the book? Because it's a work of fiction, right? And the author is clear that it's a work of fiction. Yeah, it's very clear it's a work of fiction. This is a straight up another spoiler alert. So you know, basically, it's about a story of a father who loses his daughter because she's kidnapped and killed in a remote cabin. And to try to make some peace with that event, and as he's questioning God, he goes to spend a weekend in that cabin, and then more or less has these interactions with the different parts of the Trinity, who are represented in just awful ways. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father is African-American woman, and the Son is a Jesus-looking guy for all intended purposes, and the Spirit is represented by an Asian woman. So it's an attempt to, I think, right right or wrongly, try, of course, to help us understand a little bit more about who God is, but it, it just obviously gets off the rails right from the beginning. Right. And so there are a number, um, as I said, someone who has not seen the movie um, and has just sort of gotten this secondhand, there are a number of not only just bad theological things, but just straight up trinitarian heresies that happen in the course of this movie slash book everywhere right they're all over the place so um, the fact that there are three distinct separate persons that are appearing in bodily form um that is probably problematic in and of itself um the the way that the distinction between the persons is portrayed in my understanding verges on tritheism which is the idea that the father son and spirit are not ontologically united in any way Right. Oh, it's there. So that's one of the problems. I guess also there's a scene. um, I don't know the details, but the the person who is supposed to portray the father rolls up their sleeve and has scars related to the crucifixion on their their arms. No. Um, And and that's a heresy called patropassionism. Right. So the way that this movie is portraying it is probably not directly the same as patropassionism is classically. But patropassionism comes from the Greek. Uh, pater and pa- uh, pathios or um, pasios, depending on which form the verb is in. And it's from the word saying the father suffers. And the idea was that the father suffers on the cross with the son. The father doesn't suffer. The father is impassable. So the idea that the father was suffering or had passions, right? We talk about the passion of the Christ. That's the right. suffering of the Christ. The father didn't have a passion. Um, we there are some people who want to talk about. Um, I actually I had just published an article on my blog. I'll link to it. There are some people who want to talk about the father suffering in a certain sense that there's a, a grief that comes to the father upon observing what his son is going through. That's not patropassionism, but I think it's probably problematic in itself. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's also the the strange uh, the strange portrayal of the father and the spirit as having bodies. Um, and that those bodies are not the same kind of bodies seems strange oh, so to me awful. too. Um, you know, race is not 
uh, everything, but there's a difference between an African-American woman and an Asian woman, right? There's a history that's different between an Asian woman and an African-American woman. Um, There are probably some biological differences between an Asian woman and an African-American woman. So the fact that those two bodies are not the same says something about there being substantial differences between the persons in the Trinity. Um, there's also a claim in, in the book. And I think in the movie, probably that there's no, uh, there's no level of hierarchy in the Trinity. There's no ordering in the Trinity, just a circle of unity. Well, we've seen that in the ontological Trinity, in the Trinity, as it is in eternity past, there's still an order, right? The father is still first, the son is still second, and the spirit is still third. That's not hierarchical. That's not subordinationism, but that's still an ordering that happens in the Trinity. Um, And then in the economy, there's a clear economic subordination that happens. Um, The son willingly submits and the spirit willingly submits in the economy of the Trinity. Um, So that's wrong as well. So I've gone back and forth um, about going to see this movie with other people. Um, and, and my perspective is ultimately that this movie or this book presents a radically inaccurate um, depiction of who God is, not only just the sort of relatively surface level errors of God having a body and God being a woman, those are bad, but they're relatively surface level errors that are right on the surface of the issue. But it really portrays God in a sense that is not accurate of the Bible. So if you're trying to use this as an an evangelistic tool, then basically what you're doing is you're presenting an idol and saying, this is the God of the Bible when it's not. You might as well pull out a a golden calf and say, well, let's just worship this because it's easy. Right. I think it's just about as bad as doing that. Um, but I've heard good persuasive reasons to say like, well, if my friend is already going to this um, or if there's a particular reason why they're drawn to this and it it brings them open to spirituality, then you might want to say, OK, well, I will I will um, I will agree to read the book with you or maybe even go see the movie with you. Although I couldn't in good conscience go see the movie, but some other people may have different convictions on the condition that we can sit down and talk about how the Bible presents God afterwards. Yeah, for sure. So for sure, um, if if I were a pastor, which I'm not, and someone came up to me and said, what should I do about this? I would say, don't go see it. But if you have to go see it with somebody because they are going to go see it and they're asking you to come with this kind of like the Christian representative who can explain things to them, then it should be on kind of the condition that you're saying, well, I don't think that this is an accurate portrayal of God, but I will go see it with you so I can experience it with you and then be able to speak from the scriptures about where it errs and give you an accurate presentation of God. And that's not saying that you would articulate all that to the person you're going to see it with. You're probably not going to say, well, I think this movie is really terrible, but I'm going to go ahead and go. So then I can tell you all the ways it's wrong and correct all your thinking. That's probably not going to be too effective. But if you're going to it as a Christian, you should not be going to this saying, I'm expecting to learn about God from this movie because you're literally not going to learn any more about God from this movie or from this book than you would be from worshiping an image of Baal or Ashtoreth or whoever other polytheistic Zeus, Poseidon, whoever. You're going to get the same amount of, of good, positive, correct theology from those things as you will from this movie. Right. That's well said. It is on that level. This is why we said from the beginning when we spoke about the Trinity that it's just best to avoid comparison right. metaphor. It's okay to articulate in some sense, but the minute we move into verbal or like illustrative depictions, we've already crossed the line. It's in right. the reason is not because we're 
we lack the right intentions or the right wherewithal to see it through. But the fact that we are just not going to be capable of being able to depict this with any kind of accurate, right. you know, accurate way at all. So to me, it's like, do you remember like, do you remember the highlights magazine? Yeah. Remember that? Like they always used to have like, here's an image and there's like all these hidden images in that. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, if that's what this movie is, it's like, but it's with heresy. It's like a veritable <laughs> like circle, the heresy, and it's just everywhere. And the, what I think makes it so dangerous is that there will be a lot of people who will see this and they will get caught up in the emotionalism of the story. They'll get caught up in the sense that right. God is depicted as loving, 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 loving. That's a combination of loving and long suffering, right? Loving and, uh, and, and holy and, um, you know, like there's a beautiful component, of course, to our relationship with God. And, and they're going to get caught up in that. And that really makes me sad because there's there's two things that are crazy. First is I can't think of an actual better example of human beings literally making God in their right. own image as this movie does. Right. Like it is actually saying we we are people of diversity. We value diversity in our culture. So let's make God in these three persons right. because we think that that suits us better. Um, the second thing is... Having any image of God can be very, like potentially dangerous and also downright disastrous. So, right. you know, like I, my wife and I, as I think you guys, we really like the BBC Sherlock Holmes series. Like it's fantastic. It's awesome. And I just recently decided I want to go back and read all of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. And I found, of course, that because I, even though I'd read them before, that because I had seen this television series, which graphically depicts Sherlock Holmes in a very like convincing way that my mind naturally, as I read, wanted to go back to that setting, that particular character. Like I wanted to just read it with like um, Benedict Cumberbatch, like doing all the lines because he's awesome. And my concern is that that's exactly what's going to happen to a lot of people as they see this movie, that even if they don't mean to subtly in their mind, when they go back to the scriptures, what they're going to see is everything couched in this like horrible cloud of deception right. and just downright despicable representation because of the movie. And that makes me really sad. That's why I think it, you really should be thoughtful about whether or not right. you're going to see this because it's it may, at very least, it could be not helpful. At the very worst, it could be really troublesome uh, to your theology. Yeah, and I think um, at the end of the day, as far as like gospel opportunities, which is way the way a lot of ministries and churches are framing this as a gospel opportunity, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that um, God entirely graciously sent his son in order to die for our sins so that we would not have to suffer the punishment we deserved. And as long as we repent and trust in the son for him to do that and believe that he wants to do that for us, we will be saved. My understanding of the gospel that this movie presents is something along the lines of like, God wants to help your emotional issues. And so right, he's exactly. there, they're, they're there to support you as you work through your emotional issues. And that's not the gospel, right? Hashtag not the gospel. Um, it's true that God does help you resolve emotional issues, that if you are suffering um, depression or um, have had traumatic experiences, that the reality that God exists and is sovereign is of enormous emotional support. There are, there are emotionally, when my dad died a couple, um, it's, it's been a little over a year now, um, I could turn to 
um, the scriptures and see that God is sovereign and that he works for the good, all things for the, um, for those who are called according to his purposes. So that's a promise I could latch onto, but you notice God does not work good for all, everyone, all people without exception, right? He works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, it's the, it's the people that he has chosen to save and redeem, to serve their punishment, that he works the good for. Not, right. not everyone. Uh, and again, you know, go back to our limited atonement or our atonement episode for more on that. But um, it's a hard pill to swallow. But this movie presents it as though God is just sort of sitting there wanting to be our psychologist. And that's just not exactly. that's not the gospel. God's work is to save sinners from their sins by serving, you know, by sending his son to serve the punishment for them and applying that work by the Holy Spirit. So um, I don't know how much more we can say about it, except don't go see it. OK, if people if you have a friend that is absolutely intent on seeing it. Um, and they offer to um, to come with you or something like that, then it might be a, a viable opportunity. Uh, but you should really think hard and long about going to see that movie because it's just one heresy after another. It's a heresy fest. It is. It is they could have re- con- it, they could have called the movie the heresy instead of the shack. Yeah, that would have been a more enticing yes. and accurate title. And to your point about, I understand among church leaders this desire to use something that's going to draw a lot of attention in the culture as a foil for more conversation. But if that foil is so off the mark that then to actually present the gospel, you got to basically undo everything that you just like gave them a point of access into. It just doesn't seem worth it to me at all. Absolutely. So I think you have to be really discerning and thoughtful about that. Not to mention that really part of the gospel, not to put too fine a point on it, part of the good news that you just articulated is that, we don't have to watch junk like that. Exactly. Like we don't have to get caught up in this lesser version of that. That's like a spiritual Big Mac when what Jesus is offering through the spirit that we just talked about is like the filet at his table. That's true. So it's just not worth it to get involved. I think there are, there could be like you're saying good reasons uh, to come alongside someone who is really determined to see right. it and be able to speak truth in their life if they're open to doing so, but it's probably not the best to seek it out right. as an option. There's yeah. so many better things to do. Yeah. If there's any way for you to accomplish the same end objective without exposing yourself to that movie, you should avail yourself of that. And Absolutely. I would struggle to find a context where there's not another way to accomplish it. So I'll just say that. I don't think there's right. ever really a situation where you have to see this movie in order to accomplish your end goal. Um, and, and I'll just leave it at that. So I, yeah. I think we can we can probably come back and we'll circle back to some of this stuff next week when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, but I just want to make a couple quick book recommendations and then we can wrap up with some closing thoughts. Is um, There's the, the books I mentioned earlier, The Holy Spirit by Christopher Holmes and The Triune God by Fred Sanders, both of them published by Zondervan in the New Studies and Dogmatics um, series. They're very technical, but they're very good. Um, kind of the quintessential pneumatology book, which is just the term for the study of the Holy Spirit, is um, a book by Sinclair Ferguson um, published by InterVarsity Press that is just called The Holy Spirit. It's in a whole series of systematic theology books from InterVarsity Press. Um, I have a feeling some of those are kind of getting replaced by a new generation of scholars, but they really do stand the test of time. And then um, we've stopped doing our Audible recommendations, but Sinclair Ferguson does have a uh, an option on Audible called Who is the Holy Spirit? 
Um, People got to check that out. Yeah, it was a list. Uh, it was a se- series of lectures that he did for uh, Ligonier Ministries. And then R.C. Sproul also published one of those little um, uh, Crucial Questions books uh, called Who is the Holy Spirit by the same title. That uh, It's short. You could probably read it in, I want to say, probably an hour or two. It's probably like 70 quarter pages. It's super short, but it's super digestible. So I'll put those in the show notes, but they're all really good resources to just sort of get your head around who this person is that we call the Holy Spirit, what the function of the Holy Spirit is, not only in um, our lives, but also in the actual function and place in the Trinity. Um, and all of those things are really important because we, we want to love God um, for who he is. And who God is, is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, you don't have a God apart from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if we don't understand the third person of the Trinity, then we can't possibly worship any persons of the Trinity rightly. Amen. So did you have any, with that. any closing thoughts or recommendations, Jesse? You know, not all I, all I come back to is... Even though this was a wonderfully technical conversation, all I come back to is that the Spirit does everything that we need in our life with God. And it's so wonderfully complicated, but I think if anybody else is like me, he sometimes get afraid, especially in reform circles, where if we put too emphasis, too much emphasis on the Spirit, that we're going to end up like dancing in the aisles of our churches and waving flags and stuff. And uh, that's certainly not true, that there needs to be some more emphasis there. And he does, he does everything. So I'm, yeah, I'm leaving this chair definitely stoked about that. Yeah. I have a funny story about dancing in the aisles, but I'll save it for next week when we tear apart all the charismatic abuses in in the church. Next week, stories about Tony standing on chairs, dancing in the aisle. I have several funny stories from my days in a charismatic church. Several stories about the time that Tony was a Pentecostal. (laughs) I definitely was never a Pentecostal, but... Tune in next week. Tony will tell you how he was converted from being a Pentecostal. <laughs> All right. Well, that should just about do it. This has already been a long episode, but we appreciate you sticking with us. Um, stick with us next week. We're going to talk about gifts of the spirit, cessationism, uh, continuationism, all that stuff. All right. All right. We'll see you next week. Go in the spirit. Uh-huh.